morning. Happy Lord's Day. We are celebrating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead. And so that's why we, the Bible calls us the Lord's Day. The Lord died on a Friday and rose on a Sunday. So saints gather all around the world to celebrate the hope of the resurrection we have in Christ Jesus. My name is PJ. I'm one of the pastors here. So if you're a guest here, we'd like to welcome you. Thank you for being here this morning with us. It's a joy to meditate on God's word together and sing to the Lord together. So because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bibles and open it to the book of James. The book of James, chapter 4, as we continue our series in James, it's on page 1073. If you don't have a Bible, that's page 1073 in the Pew Bible in front of you. James, chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. James 4, 1 through 12. Hear the word of God from James 4, 1 through 12. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be a friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? But he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, of the law but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and, and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us in all wisdom. Father in heaven, we ask now that you would take this word that we read and drive it deep into our hearts. Sow seeds of righteousness in peace, that it might bear the fruit of righteousness for your glory. Father, only you can plant and sow, well, we could plant and sow, but only you bring the increase. We sow, we water, but you give the increase. So Lord, take this word and bring increase into our lives. For apart from you, we can do nothing. Convict us. Open up our hearts to you, Lord. You look at the one you don't look at those who are wealthy or wise or strong in this world you look at those who are humble and contrite and broken in spirit and tremble at your word so father give us as a church family right now right here in this room a holy trembling at your word and may you be pleased to shape us thereby we pray for our children that you would also help them even in the children's class and the children here to tremble at your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The second greatest NBA basketball player of all time is Michael Jordan. He had a best friend named... <laughs> amen, amen. He had, he had a best friend named Charles Barkley. They were friends for a really long time. They are no longer friends. There's beef between the two. Really, it's on one side. It's just on Michael Jordan's side, according to Charles Barkley, at least. 
And it's because, even though they were friends for many years through their playing days in the NBA, Charles Barkley is now an analyst for the NBA, and so he gives commentary. And he comments on the strengths and weaknesses of teams and things like that. And so he has criticized the second greatest player of all time. He has criticized him, not for his basketball play, but for his ownership and management of his basketball team as a team owner. And Michael Jordan has taken that personally to the point where he has cut off his friendship with Charles Barkley. They got beef. Have you ever had church beef before? Or beef with family, family members? Or friends? Maybe even a dear friend, a longtime friend, one of your best friends? Why do we fight with those we love? If true wisdom is peace-loving, and if the seeds of righteousness bearing fruit are sown in peace by those who make peace, that's James 3.18, then why do we lack peace, if we're Christians, why do we lack peace in our relationships with others? Why this turmoil? Why this disorder? Why the tension? Why do we keep finding ourselves in fights and conflicts? We're going to jump right into the outline right now. Three points. Point one, the problem. Point two, the solution. And point three, specifics. Some specifics, okay? The problem, the solution, and some specifics. Three points. Number one, the problem. Look at verse one. Ask the same question I just asked. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? So here, the problem is stated as we have fights and conflicts. So that's, that's part of the problem. There's a few dimensions to this problem. The first one is that we have fights. We continually have fights and quarrels. We don't have to fight every time we fight. A lot of our fights are unnecessary. Yet we constantly fight and quarrel and bicker with and complain about one another, about our neighbors, with our neighbors, and our classmates and coworkers. Why? Why? What, what is our problem? Our problem is fighting, right? And the so, so the question in verse 1 is, what is the source? Where does it come from? And what's the answer in verse 1? Don't they come from what? Your passions that wage war within you. So it's your passions or your pleasures, the things you're zealous for. The word there is where we get the word hedonism, your pleasures. It comes from the pleasures, the passionate pleasures that wage war within you. So you have a fight, but you fight with others because there's a fight going on where? Inside of you. You have competitive passions in you. You're not even coherent in what you want. You want things both ways. You want people to be, to, to wrap around your self-centeredness and you also want them to be happy. But that doesn't work that way. You can't have it both ways. You can't have them worshiping you and being centered on you and then also being happy and flourishing. And so there's a conflict within you because you love them and you want them to flourish. Yet you're also having your own passions. So the fight out there is really a reflection of the fight in here. Pleasures that wage war within you. It can even be a good desire. A desire for rest. Or have you ever gotten a fight like this where, where you were trying to encourage and serve someone and they took it the wrong way and then you end up fighting about your act of service to them? Yeah, why are we fighting about this? I'm trying to serve you right now and, it became, and now we got into this big fight about an act of service. I, I was feeling, or you might have been, I was feeling so selfless and I had like died to myself. I was like, you know what? I'm going to take the... The, the, the low ground here, I'm going to serve and lift up my friend or my, my, my family member. And you, you, you serve really, really faithfully and intentionally. And it's met with resistance. And then it turns into a huge fight. Like, what happened here? I was trying to be selfless. And all of a sudden, we get in a fight. So it can even be a good desire, a good pleasure, a good passion. Have you ever come home wanting to rest and you enter into a war zone? In the house? Is it, is it a bad thing to want to rest? No. No. Is it a bad thing to want a little peace and quiet? No. I said a little peace and quiet. Is it a bad thing? No, it's not bad, right? It's a, it's, it's, it's a good desire. You could have a pleasure there and a passion. But can it lead to fights when you get home and it's a war zone? Yes, it can, right? It can. So even a good desire can become a fight. So we have these passions and pleasures. So our first problem is that we have fights. 
But, but going deeper than that, it's because we have, look at verse 2, look at verse 2. You desire and do not what? You don't have. And so we have, uh, so here's our second dimension of the problem. We have unfulfilled desires. Not only do we have fights, fights outside, fights within, we have unfulfilled desires. Why can't I just have what I want? You desire, it says here, and do not have. And because we do not have, what do we do? You murder and covet and cannot obtain. Now, is James speaking about murdering here, like literally? Like actually, like, like his church family is just filled with a bunch of murderers who have just been murdering all these people because they've had these desires? Is that what he means? Actual murder where they should be in jail? No. What does he mean by murder there? His older brother, Jesus, gives us a clue, right? Jesus says, you have heard it said unto you, do not murder. But I say to you, do not what? Don't hate or don't be angry with your brother. Because if you do that, you've murdered, you've murdered, I mean, that's equivalent to murder. You've murdered them in your heart. And so when you don't get your way and you're in conflict, you get sinfully angry and embittered towards people. And you murder According to Jesus, you murder them in your heart. You covet, you desire something that you don't have, reading on in the verse, because you cannot obtain it. So that's an unfulfilled desire. You cannot obtain it. So you, because you don't have it, you fight and wage war. You hate and you attack and you desire, but you're still uh, unable to obtain your desire, so you have an unfulfilled desire. Reading on in verse 2, you do not have, why? Because you what? You do not ask. Again, an unfulfilled desire. You don't have because you don't ask. Okay, Lord, I'll ask you because we just read and sang Matthew 7 where it says, Ask and you will receive. receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be okay. open to you. Jesus said those words, right? Okay, so I don't ask. I don't receive because I don't ask. Okay, fine. I'll ask. And so we ask God for things. We ask God for some of our good desires, right? Our innocent desires. Why don't we get it still? Look at verse 2. You, you do not have because you do not ask. And then verse 3, you ask and don't receive. Why? Because you ask with wrong motives. Another way of translating this is because you ask wickedly or badly. Bad in the moral sense of bad. You ask badly. You ask wickedly. You ask with wrong or wicked or evil motives. And what is that motive? What's the purpose of your motive? What's the goal? Look at verse 3. The goal of your ask is what? So that you may spend it what? On your, own on your own pleasure. So ultimately, this is an unfulfilled desire because it's a wicked desire. I mean, what's wrong with wanting a little bit of peace and quiet at home? What's wrong with wanting your service to your friend to be accepted and appreciated? Nothing wrong with that. But here, James is saying, well, you're, you're asking... Somewhere in your motive, somewhere there in your goal, it has moved from a good desire to a wrong motive. A wicked goal. So that you may spend it on your self-centered pleasures. Your own pleasures. That's the wrong motives. To spend it on your own pleasures. In other words, yeah, there might be a mixture of good in there. Because you do have some good motives. But mixed in with your desire to serve your friend is to be appreciated by your friend. And you know, when your friend doesn't appreciate your service, ah, that part of the desire, rather than just the desire to serve them, is what becomes a sticking point, right? And then you get angry, and you lash out, because that good desire was mixed with that self-centered desire for your own pleasure, to spend it on your own pleasure. Is praying a bad thing or a good thing? Good thing, right? But you could pray like a Pharisee, Right In Matthew 6, the Pharisees would stand on the corner on the streets and pray out loud so that people could see them because it wasn't ultimately their desire to talk to God and praise God or ask God for the help that they need. Their ultimate reason for praying was what? To be what? Seen by others and appreciated or praised by other people. See, there was a desire to pray there. That was a good desire, but mixed in with that was a wrong motive. There was wickedness there. There was a self-centeredness there. There was a spending on your own pleasures there that are pushed away from God. And remember, from James 3, 13 through 18 last week, we talked about the false wisdom looks like true wisdom, right? It can still be religious. It can still be ambition for ministry. 
Ambition for God's glory. Ambition for the kingdom. Ambition for the spread of the gospel and the great commission. And James pointed us last week to the so-called wisdom in ministry when he spoke of selfish ambition and bitter envy that comes up in your heart while you're doing so-called biblically wise things. Even teachers and leaders in the church, those who think of themselves as teachers and leaders and the mature and wise in the church fall into these traps. And the bottom line so far is that this fighting with others is because there is a wicked pleasure, a selfish ambition at the bottom of your heart, and that is what is making you fight with others. In a word, you're selfish. It's your selfishness that's causing this fight. Now, I do need to make a side note here. It may be that the other party is selfish and you are merely upholding righteousness in having conflict with the other person. In other words, sometimes it's right to fight. Did Jesus ever get into conflict with others? Yes. Did Jesus ever sin? No. No. Did Jesus ever initiate conflict with others? Yes, he did. Yet he never sinned. He was never selfish. Jesus was never selfish. So I do want to put that as a side note. So sometimes you're fighting not because you're sinning, but because of a righteous cause. Okay, so outside of that, James is focusing here not on that. that that's true. That happens sometimes. Okay, but you have to be careful because sometimes you think you're in the Jesus box when you're actually in this box. Or actually you got one foot in both, right? Because you want to do something righteous. But there is some selfish ambition there at the same time. And so that mixture is where it gets tricky in terms of discerning your own heart. Okay? The point here is that if there is a conflict, it comes from a deep pleasure and a deep passion within you. And that if that passion and deep pleasure is not a deep passion and pleasure in and for God, then it is by definition a wrong motive. It is by definition asking wickedly. And it is a selfish ambition. So our problem is that we get in fights. Our problem is unfulfilled desires. Our problem is a wicked desire. But deeper than that, the problem is bigger and deeper than that. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. So James just flips from you you're fighting and talking about your heart to he, then he just starts calling us names. You adulterers. The literal translation here is you adulteresses. He, he speaks to us as if we're the, we're the wife who's cheating on her husband. Which alludes probably, at least in part, to God's marriage to his people. Christ and the church. That Christ is the groom and we are the bride. And yet, in our selfish ambition, in our wicked asking with wrong motives, we are cheating on God. We are sleeping with somebody else. Spiritual adultery. You adulterous people. How is this adultery? Look at verse 4. Don't you know that friendship with the world is what? Hostility, hostility toward God. Or enmity. Hostility toward God. I like the word enmity. Hostility is okay. We'll get enmity in the next phrase anyways. So whoever wants to be a friend of the world will, will be, or becomes what? Whoever wants to be a friend of the world becomes the what? Enemy. Enemy of God. So here's the problem. The problem is bigger and deeper than your unfulfilled desires and your fighting and your wicked desires. The problem is that you are hostile toward God. You're like, I don't have any mad feelings towards God. I'm not mad at God. I'm mad at my wife. I'm mad at my kids. I'm mad at my fellow church member. I'm mad at my neighbor. I'm mad at my coworker. I'm not mad at God. I'm good with God. Me and God are good. No hostility there. Just hostility here. And James is saying, no. There's hostility between you and God. There's enmity there. And then he says, because friendship with the world is adultery against and a betrayal of God. If you want to be a friend of the world, James is saying in verse 4, you make yourself the enemy of God. How do you make yourself the enemy of God? By what? Being a friend of the world. It's even, it's, even, it's even more sensitive than that. Not even just being a friend of the world. By wanting to be a friend of the world. You're not even friends yet. You just want to be a friend of the world. 
Now, what is the world here? The world here is really anything earthly that has God pushed out of the center and goal of life and values. Okay? It's, it's a mindset that marginalizes God. It takes God out of the center and out of the goal of your life. But you can still have God in there. You can still have Jesus. You can still preach the gospel. You can still go to church every Sunday. You can still be a quote-unquote good member of BBC. You just can't have God really like in the center of your desires and passions. And he can't really be the ultimate goal. Not in worldliness. So David Wells says, worldliness is that function of the world that makes righteousness seem strange and sin seem normal. So worldliness makes sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. Can you think of any examples? Can you just shout out any example of something in the world that seems, where, where sin seems normal and righteousness seems strange? Give me one or two examples. Anyone? Abortion. Yeah, so for some, abortion is just a normal thing. Why? That's a sin. And then, and then fighting for pro-life and working through difficult pregnancies, that seems strange. Why would you fight for that? Okay, one, one, one other one. Divorce, same-sex marriage, right? Gender and sexuality, yeah. The, the world now, keep in mind here, even when we're talking about worldliness, this is particular to a particular generation and geographic location. So if we're talking about marriage confusion, is there marriage confusion in Iran? No. No, okay? Not between a, a man and woman being married. So, but there are different worldlinesses there, right? That will have you compromise with Jesus. The point though, is that when you have these desires, with God, God can still be there. He's just not in the center or in the goal. All of a sudden, sin seems normal and righteousness seems strange. And when you want that thing, that earthly treasure, that earthly value, with God displaced from the center, that is wanting to be a friend of the world. And when you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. So to, prevent, to befriend the world is to make yourself an enemy of God. To want to be a friend of the world is to betray God. It says that you make yourself an enemy of God. You know what that means? That means that your desire for worldliness, your desire for other pleasures with God outside of the center is a declaration of war. It's a declaration of war against God. God doesn't become your enemy because God is the one picking the fight. You pick the fight. I pick the fight. I'm the one who wants to be a friend of the world. I'm the one who wants a self-centered pleasure. And so in that desire, I am declaring war against God. And I'm becoming an enemy of God. Psalm 1.1 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in a group of mockers. He's, he, he doesn't find his friendship and his values primarily there, but his delight, notice the, the pleasure there. His delight, his pleasure is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. We know this. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Bad company corrupts good morals. You've heard the quip, you are, you are most like your five closest friends. Or you are most like the, the five people you spend the most time with. There's values there. There's a reason you spend time with the people you spend time with. Because you value what they value. You love what they love. And you side with them where they side. And so Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters, since he will either hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Matthew 6, 24. So a good desire becomes a God desire, and that God desire becomes a God rival. And this decentering of God is what produces disorder in your life. It's what produces the tension within and in relationships. So this decentering of God is what produces disorder 
instability, selfishness, and conflict, both in your own soul and in your relationships with others. But it gets worse than hostility with God. As if that could be bad enough. Verse 5, it gets worse. Your problem is bigger than that. It's not just that you're an enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? How many of you know what that verse means? Raise your hand. This is a confusing verse. It is. I mean, even me reading out loud, I'm like, I almost got confused again just reading it out loud to you guys. Even though I studied it and prepared to preach on it. It's a confusing verse. Now, there are, the reason why there's two, two difficulties with this verse. Number one is a translation difficulty. Number two is a scripture reference difficulty. Okay? The scripture reference difficulty is, it says that the scripture says. So it's like quoting scripture. The problem is that we don't know what passage of the scripture says that. But let's get to that second thing. Let's go to the first one. We have a translation problem here. So here, let me give you the three translations. And if you, have a, if you don't have a CSB, I'm sorry. I'm, uh, I preach from the CSB. I disciple people in the CSB. And so that's what I'm doing here. So there are footnotes here. So I'm going to play off of these footnotes because those are the three translations, okay? So the translation here, the first one is, the Spirit, um, the Scripture says, the Spirit He made to dwell in us envies intensely. So that's the human spirit. God, the human spirit that God made to dwell in us envies. That means your human spirit has desires. Your human spirit has passions, has pleasures. And it's intense pleasures. And God made you that way. That's one translation. I don't think that's the right translation, though it's, it still would make sense in the context. It just means that those, it'll go back to verse 1, 2, and 3, that you have these intense passions and pleasures. And the Bible has told you that because you're made in God's image. And God is a God uh, with these pleasures. And if God is a God of pleasure and you're made in those pleasures, you are to have a passion as well. So that still is biblically true. I just think that that's kind of focusing on verses 1 through 3. I think James is actually advancing the argument to five, 4, 5, and 6. So the other two translations are in your footnote. If you have a CSB, look at footnote uh, there for verse 5. It says, the scripture says, he jealously yearns for the spirit he made to live in us. Who's the he there? Who's the one jealously yearning there? God is. God is jealously yearning for your human spirit. Because your human, your human spirit that he made to live in you is a worshiping spirit. And God is jealous for your worshiping spirit, your human spirit. That's one way to understand it. I think that's a good way. I think the second way, it gets to the same point. Another translation is, or the scripture says, the Holy Spirit. Not saying the Holy, but the Spirit as in the Spirit of God. The Spirit, capital S, he made to dwell in us longs jealously. I think either of those translations are better. I think that gets at the point. The point really isn't about our human spirit longing, verses 1 through 3. The point here is that when you oppose God and you make him an enemy of God, God himself, the reason why you make yourself an enemy of God is because God doesn't fold to your idolatry. He yearns jealously for your spirit. Or his Holy Spirit yearns jealously for you. God is passionate for you. And so when you declare war on him, that passion and zeal and jealous um, power of God is aimed at you, and you're on the wrong side of that. So let's go to the, let's go to the, the Bible verse. There's no Bible verse on this. It's probably not a, a single Bible verse, but a bunch of Bible verses that talk about God yearning jealously over his people. Let me read to you four of many verses. Okay? Listen to these verses. The Ten Commandments. You guys know the Ten Commandments? You guys know the Ten Commandments? <laughs> <laughs> Exodus 20, verse 5. I'm not sure if you can recite them now, but anyways. Exodus 20, verse 5 says this. This is commandment number two. Do not bow in worship to them. So this is, don't make any graven images, right? Don't bow in worship to them and do not serve them. Why? For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. Bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Or Exodus 34, 14. Because Yahweh is jealous for his reputation, you are never to bow down to another god. He is a jealous god. Exodus 34, 14. Or Deuteronomy 4, 24. Deuteronomy 2 and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 4, 24. For Yahweh your God is a consuming fire... A jealous God. One more. Deuteronomy 6.15. For Yahweh your God, who is among you, 
is a jealous God. And I want you to pick up on this last part, okay? It's all kind of similar, but listen to this. He's a jealous God. Otherwise, Yahweh your God, if you keep sitting, Yahweh your God will become angry with you and obliterate you from the face of the earth. Do you hear that? God is a jealous God. You keep idolizing and you keep adulterating with God. It says, God will become angry with you. There's Moses speaking to the Israelites. God will become angry with you and obliterate you from the face of the earth. This is why the problem is so big. I mean, it might be one thing to get God angry with you or cheat on God and be hostile to God if God was weak and wimpy, right? I mean, if you could take God or if we could take God together, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. Yeah, God's our enemy, but so what? We could take him. But when this is the God of the universe who's angry with you with an infinite anger and who has the power to obliterate you with a thought, with a word, that's a serious problem you have. To have this God against you. God is jealous for our worship. He is righteously jealous. And as Deuteronomy says, he will become angry and obliterate you. And it gets worse. Verse 6. Well, I already kind of hit it with the obliteration part. But verse 6 is what picks up on it. He gives greater grace. Therefore it says, what does God do to the proud? God what? God resists the proud. So your problem is that you have God resisting you. God opposes the proud. God opposes you. God resists you. God is angry with you in your sin. Now, James wrote this in a specific way in the original language that highlights the fact that God is personally invested in resisting you. Do you guys hear that? If you want to translate, there's no good English way of translating this, but if I was trying to do this in English, I would say, God himself resists the proud. Kind of highlighting that God, God is the one. I myself resist you. God is personally invested in opposing you. God takes idolatry and adultery personally, as he should, right? As he should. It's right for God to do this, to take it personally. God takes proud arrogance of humans personally. I've been doing my devotions in the book of Job. I just finished Job. And at the end of Job, in Job 40, you know, you know where Job, Job is calling God out for like chapter upon chapter upon chapter? And just saying, man, God is not being fair. God is being unrighteous. If God would just listen to me, he would know that this is wrong. Something's wrong down here. Now, Job, never, Job did sin in that way. So God's going to rebuke him in, in Job 38 through 41. But Job never, Satan was wrong still. Because Satan wasn't just saying that Job would sin. Satan would say, was saying that if you, if you cause Job to suffer, he will curse you. And Job never, ever cursed God. So God was right, Satan was wrong. No news there, you already know God will always be right, Satan will always be wrong. But, but, but Job was still sinning. And Job was questioning God in pride. And so God says stuff like, where were you when I created the stars? Where were you when I created the oceans? Do you command the ocean? When the wave of the ocean goes, do you command exactly where each wave will stop and come back in? Do you do that, Job? Do you, do you know, do you make animals give birth? And he just asks question after question and challenging Job. Are you me? Do you know who I am? Do you know who you are, Job? And in this section of God rebuking Job, God is showing who he is in comparison to who Job is, to put Job in his place, Right? So God is showing who he is. So I want you to know that as I quote to you, Job 40, verses 10 through 14. Job 40, verses 10 through 14. Because when God is describing himself, saying, Job, are you like me? Are you like this? Listen to what he says about himself. and says, Job, are you like this? Job 40, verse 10 says this. He says to Job, God says to Job, Job, adorn yourself with majesty and splendor. Clothe yourself with honor and glory. And then he says this to Job. Job, pour out your raging anger. Look on every proud person and humiliate him. Every one of them. Look on every proud person and humble him. Trample the wicked where they stand. Hide them together in the dust. Imprison the, the proud and the wicked. Imprison them in the grave, Job. If you do that, Job, then I'll confess that you are you that your own right hand can deliver you. I will trust you, Job, and you will be the one who can deliver yourself. Now, can Job do that? No, but who does that? God does. 
every proud person. He notes them. He has raging anger towards their pride. He humbles and humiliates them. He tramples them. He hides them and buries them in the dust and he imprisons them in the grave. That's what God does to the proud. God takes it personally when we raise up against him in pride. God takes this personally. Whether it's Adam in the Garden of Eden eating the fruit, whether it's King Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor of the world of Babylon at the time, looking out at his vast empire, says, look at all that I've done. And God turns him. Do you guys know this story in Daniel 4? God, gives it, God makes him go, um, he, he makes him lose his mind so that he starts acting like an animal for seven years. God humbles the proud there. Or King Herod in Acts chapter 12, where King Herod is giving a speech before the Jews and the Jews are like, kissing up to King Herod because they had bad tensions with King Herod. And he comes out and his robes are just sparkling. He's dressed in this kingly garb. The sun is shining off of the, the water because it's in Caesarea uh, near the coast. And he's there in the amphitheater and he just looks glorious. And all of the, the people are saying, look, he looks like a god. And he's just soaking up this glory. And you know what God does? He strikes him dead right there. Herod's like feeling himself right there in his pride. And you know what God does? God kills him and strikes him right in front of everybody. I mean, this is what God does. God hates the proud. I mean, when I read, you know, read through your Bible, you just get the sense of God. I'll read stuff like, you know, I'm reading through uh, Assyria or um, is it Aram? You know, you're reading about these people fighting against the people of God in Israel, like Hezekiah, when Hezekiah's trying to protect Jerusalem. And then like the the commander of the other army starts talking trash to Israel. And you're like, okay, he's talking trash to Israel. And then he starts calling out Yahweh. And he's like, Yahweh is nothing. He can't deliver you. And I'm like, I, I read that. I'm like, oh man, you shouldn't have went there. You crossed the line. Once you bring his name into it, you're, you're going to like, you, you're, you're done. You just, you can, you can start mocking God's people. I get that. But once you cross that line, you start calling out Israel's God and you call him out by name in comparison to your God. It's over. It's a wrap. Like it's done. God opposes the proud. He, did, he, he takes it personally. He's personally invested in resisting the proud. God is passionate for our worship, our service, our allegiance, our adoration, and our pleasure. God is angry and vengeful in the purity of his holiness and righteousness. It's right for God to be angry and vengeful in the way that it's right for a spouse to be angry with an adulterer seducing his or her spouse, right? If my wife is committing adultery, it's right for me to be angry at her. It's right for me to be angry at those who are influencing her towards that adultery. It would be wrong for me to not to care. I God, I want to be sharing. I don't want to look out for my own interests, but also the interests of others. Just share my spouse. You don't do that. Like That's not righteous. That would be unrighteous, right? That's unrighteous. It's righteous. For a husband to have a jealous, a, a righteously God-centered jealousy for his spouse. Or vice versa, the wife or her husband. It's right to be angry and vengeful. It's right for God to be angry and vengeful and invested in our spiritual adultery. It's right for God to execute judgment for this. To trample the wicked. And the problem here for us is that we can't win against God. That's the problem, okay? So there's the problem. What's the solution? Verses 7 through 10. What's the solution? Well, our sin is great. Our enemy is great. God opposes us. There's no way you're going to win. Our threat is great because you can't win. But look at verse 6. There's actually good news here because it sounds like a lot of bad news. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 begins with, so God envies intensely for us. We're opposed to him. But what does verse 6 say? But he gives what? Grace. Greater grace. Our sin is great. God's grace is greater. Our adultery is great. God's grace is greater. Our selfish ambition and pleasures are great. But God's grace is greater. Our judgment is great. But God's grace is greater. And God's grace is greater because Jesus was the only one who was not selfish. But actually, truly looked out for the interests of others. He's the only one who emptied himself and took the form of a servant. He's the one who never got in a fight, a sinful fight in his life. He never betrayed the Father 
or pushed him out of the center and goal of his life. He never got caught up in an unrighteous conflict where he was the one sinning or going too far in a fight or holding back too passively in a fight. He always fought obediently to God with God in the center and the goal. He is the only truly and perfectly humble and worshipful one that should never be resisted or opposed by God. Who should never be a recipient of God's anger. But still, but still, God's anger and righteous jealousy and holy hatred and just opposition and resistance was aimed at Jesus Christ on the cross. God aimed his anger and enmity, enmity at Jesus on the cross. Or to use Job 40's words, God poured out his raging anger on Jesus. God humiliated Jesus. He humbled him. He trampled him where he stood. He hid him together in the dust. He imprisoned Jesus in the grave. If the wages of sin is death, he caused the death and inflicted the death on the Son of God. Not for his sins, but for whose? For ours. So that he can give greater grace. This is the gospel. If you're not a Christian, you can have forgiveness of sins. You can have greater grace, greater than your sin and the judgment that you deserve. Because Jesus died for your sin and rose from the dead. So repent from your sins and trust in this Jesus. Now you might say, I don't want to trust in this Jesus. I'm telling you, trust in this Jesus. You have eternal life. God is offering it for you today. Now you might say, why does God have to be so angry? If God is loving, why can't he just let things go? Why does he have to punish his son? Christianity seems to be this outdated, outdated ancient religion with a condemning, condemning judgmental deity. God kills people in judgment? He kills his own son on the cross? This is crazy. Why would I ever want to be a Christian? Why can't God just let things go and be nice? Well, let me answer that in two ways. Number one, well, a few ways. God does not demand your blood on the cross. He offers his own. All forgiveness of any deep wrong or injustice entails suffering on the forgiver's part. If someone truly wrongs you and it costs you something, then it entails suffering to forgive that person. You can't just shrug it off. So if I borrowed one of the many members here who own a Tesla, right? If I borrowed your car, if I borrowed your Tesla, I don't know how much that's, 60K, 70K, 50K, whatever it is. If I brought your new Tesla and I was driving around recklessly for fun, like intentionally recklessly, and I accidentally smash your Tesla into a tree, you could forgive me or you could make me pay for it, but someone has to pay for it, right? You can't just forgive me and then like the Tesla fixes itself. So if it's out, if you're if you're out 60k, it just doesn't fix itself, or it doesn't it just doesn't replace itself, right? Either you say, hey PJ, don't worry, I forgive you, but that hurts. How much does that hurt? Sixty thousand dollars of hurt, right? That's how much it hurts, right? Or you could say, I don't forgive you, you have to pay for it. Let's take insurance out of it. I know we can do insurance. Okay, take an insurance factor out of it. You have to pay for it. Okay, either way, someone has to pay. It doesn't just go away. You can't just be nice and just shrug it off. If that's the debt we owe for something like a Tesla, when you sin against God, the debt we owe for sin against God is infinite. It cannot just be shrugged off. Someone has to pay for this injustice against God. So, if we can't forgive without suffering and absorbing the cost, God doesn't either. But the good news is God doesn't make you pay for it. He'll, he gives you Jesus so that Jesus pays for it so that you can be forgiven of your sins. So instead of making us pay for our sin and our penalty, God absorbs the suffering and unjust payment himself on the cross. All right, so let's go back to verse 6. Who does God give grace to? God gives greater grace. God resists the, pr the proud, but who does he give greater grace to? The humble. Grace comes through humility. Therefore, so he says, therefore, verse 7, Seven, submit to God. 
Look at verse 10. Therefore, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. If God gives grace to the humble, what should you do? Humble yourself, right? So that's the solution. The solution is God's greater grace that comes through humbling yourself before God. And to me, that's the main command. So the main goal of the sermon, the main goal of this text is verse, verses 7 and 10. Be humbled and submitted to God so that you receive greater grace. There's the main goal. Okay? Be humbled and submitted to God so that you receive greater grace. Because God gives greater grace. Not to the proud. He resists the proud. But he gives greater grace to the humble. So humble yourselves. Be humbled and submitted to God so that you receive greater grace. All right, let's close with this last point. So we did the problem. We did the solution. Lastly now, specifics. Specifics of humble repentance. What does it mean to have humble, to be humbly repentant? So in the second half of this passage, verses 7 through 12, we have five specifics to repent in humility. Five specifics to repent in humility. Are you guys ready for this? This could be a sermon in and of itself, but we're just going to smash this in at the end of the sermon. Okay? Five specifics to repent in humility. Number one, repent in humility directionally. I'll give you the five words. I'll give you four of them at least. Directionally, comprehensively, emotionally, and interpersonally. There's more, but that's four at least. But it gives you a sense. Okay? First, directionally. Repent in humility directionally. Look at verse 7. Resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you, draw near to God, and he will what? Draw near to you. So there's two directions here. Directionally, who do you need to resist? The devil. Who do you need to draw near to? To God. Right? We, you need to resist the devil. Why? Because the devil tempts you. Demons tempt you. They are active and engaged to promote their wisdom, demonic wisdom, earthly wisdom, and it is really attractive and plausible. It looks Christian. And you're not called to resist the devil for five seconds, or five minutes, or five days, or five months, or five years. Say no to the devil. I like what John Piper says when fighting lust. Avoid temptation, but if you're in the temptation, say no, turn to God, and hold on to God as, as strongly as you can, because the temptation doesn't always leave right away. Demons don't always quit after one try. They keep knocking, they keep banging, they keep trying to find an entrance into your life. So you resist the devil and you keep resisting the devil. And so we pray things like, deliver us from the evil one, right? Do not bring us into, te into temptation. But we need to draw near to God and not just avoid the devil. And God says here, draw near to God. James says, draw near to God and he will what? Draw near to you. This is what God promises us. He says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Jeremiah 29, 13. God promises that as you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. How do you draw near to God? You can just say three words. These are not magic words. But if you say these in relationship to God, it works. Because it's God. God, help me. Or two words. God, help. Right? You come home and you're looking for peace and quiet and you don't have peace and quiet. And you feel this storm not just out there. Now the storm goes where? goes right up into your heart and you're like God help help Lord I need you I need you right now draw near to God and he will what draw near to you so read your Bible pray commune with him gather with the saints good job being here today listen to his word sing to him get alone time with him get time with him with other people we sing a lot of songs one of the reasons we sing a lot of songs is so that you'd memorize some of the songs so sing some of the songs in moments like these, I sing out a song, I sing out a love song to Jesus, saying, I love you, Lord. Say that in the middle of the storm. Or, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. Sing to God and call on God. Draw near to God. So, draw near, uh, so uh, humble repentance or repent in humility directionally. Secondly, repent in humility comprehensively. Look at verse 8 to verse 9. I'm sorry, just the rest of verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your what? Your hearts, you double-minded. So what are the two things? Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Your hearts and your hands. Now, I've never washed my hands so much as I have since being married to Francis. We wash our hands all the time for everything, everywhere we go, multiple times. And I didn't realize how much it has changed my normal pattern until I went on a men's retreat with some BBC guys. 
And I found myself saying what Francis says to me regularly to them. Did you wash your hands? They're like, what? I didn't wash your hands? <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, like, washing hands, so wash your hands, so here, just cleanse your hands regularly. So, and then, so cleanse your hands and, and then purify your what? Your hearts. So this is not just conversion, though I think it, it applies to that. My point with Francis is washing hands. And how do you cleanse your heart? I mean, I was just thinking about the heart analogy. Can you really cleanse your heart? Like, 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 like um, I'm getting way beyond my pay grade, so let me step outside of the pulpit here. Medically speaking, um, you don't, do you really cleanse your heart? What do, you, what, do you, what do you need cleansed in your body regularly? Your blood. And how is that cleansed? Through your, I don't know if I'm, I'm way out of my pay grade. Okay, I'm, 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 I'm stepping even over further over here. Let me step over here. Okay. Um, I was thinking of the kidney or dialysis. Doesn't dialysis purify blood? Yeah. No, it's urine. Yeah. It does? Okay. Anyways, kidney or liver, the point is, well actually the point the point can still stand. It doesn't matter what, how it's done. Here's the point. Your blood doesn't just need to get purified one time. It needs to continually be purified. Regularly. You need to wash your hands regularly. Your heart needs to be purified, not just once, not just at conversion, and then you're good for the rest of your Christian life. No, but regularly you should be purifying your hearts. Regular soap, regular dialysis, or liver, or kidney, or whatever it is, right? But what are you, what are you cleansing here? What are you going for? It's not your literal hands and not your literal heart. What are we going for? What's that, what does hands represent? Your actions, right? And what does your heart represent? Your passion, your attitude. So stop sinning, both in action and in attitude. Stop making provision for your flesh. Cut off your sin. And don't foolishly allow opportunities for your sinful actions and habits and attitudes to be cultivated. But more than attitude, I like what Ross said. Not just attitude, but passion. So hands are action. Cleanse your actions. Stop sinning. Stop your sinful actions. Stop your sinful habits. But not just your habits and your actions, but your heart. Not just your attitude, but your passion. And we get passion... Because look at verse 8. Purify your hearts, you what? Double-minded. Have you seen double-minded in James earlier? Where? In James chapter 1, ask for wisdom, but don't ask with doubting, because you're like the wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person is a double-minded man, unstable in what? In all his ways. What does that mean? Being double-minded is saying, I want to do two things at the same time. My heart wants Jesus and wants my non-Jesus treasure or my Jesus to the side treasure. I want Jesus to be the center of my life and I want Jesus to be like second place in my life at the same time. And when you're doing that, you're wavering between two opinions. You're double-minded in your heart. Your heart is not fully committed to God. So cleanse your hearts. You have a double-minded heart? To mix analogies of mind and heart. Are you double-hearted? Are you double-minded? Are you committed to Jesus and to something else and you're trying to have it both ways? Purify your heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all your heart. And do this regularly. Okay, so that's, that's um, comprehensively. Hand and, and heart. Next, repent with humility emotionally. Look at verse 9. Repent with humility emotionally. Verse 9. I'm going to translate this without the words and here. Be miserable or grieve, mourn, weep. Grieve, mourn, weep. These are strange commands. What is God telling you to do? To be miserable. What do we do when we see a brother or sister in misery? We want to what? <coughs> Encourage them. We want to get them out of their misery. Jesus is saying, no, no, don't get them out of their misery. Stay miserable. Be miserable. Stay there. Stay in your misery. Be miserable. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it says, so it says, be miserable and then mourn. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who, or but, yeah. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And then here James tells us to weep. What is it, what's the point here? When you're going to, if you're going to repent with humility, be emotionally committed, invested, and in tune with God in light of your sin, in light of your pride, in light of your selfishness. And if that doesn't make sense to you, he clarifies it with the, with the following command. Look at verse 9 again. 
In case you didn't get those three hammer commands, be miserable, mourn, weep. Look at the command again. Finish the verse. Let your laughter be turned to what? Morning. Morning and your joy to gloom. Don't always be cheery. It's okay to be sad sometimes. That's emotionally healthy. And it's spiritually healthy as well. Sometimes we want to comfort each other so quickly with the gospel of God's grace, and we do believe and love and treasure the gospel of God's grace, that we don't let, we don't let ourselves or others mourn and be miserable for their sin. Stop laughing. Stop being joyful. What's so funny? What's so funny when you're sinning? What's so funny about spiritual adultery? What's so funny about selfish ambition? Be miserable, mourn, weep, grieve over the experience of losing something. We only grieve over things we, we value, right? When we lose things we value. Grieve like you do over the deep pain when you feel it and you regret it and you wish it could be different and if you could go over and do something differently, you would. To repent truly, you need to mourn truly. Mourn truly to repent truly. You can't do it without real mourning. Real repentance requires real mourning over your sin. When you're really mourning, when you're grieving over your sin, that indicates that, that the, the repentance has reached your heart. And that goes much deeper than your lips. I had one, I'll, I'll change my application here. I had one that I was going to share in terms of where I, I'm like, man, I don't apply this verse in my life. If, if the, my takeaway, when I, for my studies, verse 9, like, I don't do this verse. So I was convicted by that and said, Lord, how do you want me to do this verse? And I thought of something I was going to say here, but I said, I'm going to say something else based on Ben's prayer, Ben's prayer of confession. So when Ben was praying the prayer of confession, I'm like, this is why we confess. We want to mourn. We want to weep. We want to grieve over our sin. And so Ben brought up the category of neglecting our neighbors of not sharing the gospel with them. And I'm like, Lord, I don't want to just confess that. I want, to, I want to mourn over the fact that I don't share the gospel with my neighbors. How do I do that? Okay, I'm busy. You know what I really believe deep down? God, you don't care about my neighbors. I mean, I know you do. I'll say you do. I'll preach that you do. But the way I live and interact with my neighbors, I don't live like I really believe you care for your neighbors. My neighbors. I deep down believe you don't care for them. You know what? God, I deep down believe that you have not moved towards them for their salvation. Like you haven't made any movements towards them for, the, for their salvation. Is that true? That God hasn't made any moves toward them for their salvation? Is that true? Yes or no? No. Is it true that God doesn't care? Yes or no? No. No. And you know why I know God cares? Well, he tells us God so loved the world. You know why I know that God has made a move towards them for their salvation? Because I'm their neighbor. Who made me their neighbor? God did. God put me there for them. Right? But I don't believe that. And so as I'm confessing my neighborly sin, I'm like, Lord, forgive me not just for neglecting my neighbors, but for acting like you don't care. Forgive me for acting like your actions are too weak and wimpy and won't do anything for their eternal good. That is sinful. If we could get to how we're just misrepresenting God, maybe that'll, I don't know if that helps you. That helps me mourn a little bit more for my... It helps me to weep a little bit. I, I didn't have any tears, but it helps me to mourn and grieve a little bit more for my neglect. But what we want to do is we, want, we don't want to move too fast. We want to stay there and be miserable and mourn and weep and grieve over our sins. Ah, oh, man. I got to move on. I had a story there from Charles Simmons, but let's move on. Okay. Uh, so that's um, emotionally. Next, we need to repent with humility interpersonally interpersonally. Look at verses 11 and 12. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. And if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. So what's the command? Don't what? Criticize, criticize one another. Does that mean you should never criticize one another? No. So you guys are just disagreeing with James? <laughs> Take that back. You just, you just contradicted James? No. Okay. Don't criticize one another. What does that mean? Does it mean we should never criticize? No, it, it doesn't mean that because you have to read the rest of it. What is the criticism like? Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames or judges the law. 
So you're doing it in a way that you're speaking against the law of God, that you're judging the law. And if you are, read on, if you, if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a what? A judge. A judge. So you, you place yourself equal to the law and above the law and not under the law. And so you're judging, you're criticizing, you're speaking against someone in a sinful way. Does that sound like anyone else who said something about judging? Jesus. What did Jesus say? Don't judge, what? So that you won't be judged. Now he's not saying, if you read the full paragraph, he's not saying don't ever judge. Don't judge so that you won't be judged. And then look, listen to verse 3 of this Matthew 7, verse 3. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite. First what? Take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Is he saying don't ever take splinters out of other people's eyes? No. So you do need to correct people. You do need to take splinters out. But how do you do it in a way that's self-righteous? When you don't take the what? You don't take the log out of your eye first. You make yourself equal to the law. You make yourself above the law. Now you can correct somebody with a self-righteous condescension because you don't see any sin in your life, right? Because you're sinless. You're a judge of the law. Don't criticize like that. Don't speak against one another like that. Don't deal with their sin before dealing with your sin. Deal with your sin first, unless you're the judge. Unless you're above the law. If you do that, you're competing with the judge. Look at verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy. Is that you? No. Who's the, who's the lawgiver? God is. So who are you to judge your neighbor? When you judge others, when you criticize others with a self-righteous sinlessness as if you walk on water, you forget who you are. You're under the law. You're a doer of the law. You're submitted to God. You're a fellow brother, sister, and neighbor to a fellow human. So don't criticize sinfully. Keep God central in your splinter removal service. You should be removing splinters from your brothers and sisters. But keep God central in your splinter removal service. Lastly, worshipfully. Okay? The, last, the fifth one is worshipfully. Repent with humility worshipfully. And this is just verses 7 and 10. Verse 7 says, therefore what? Submit to God. Verse 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Let's just think about this. So, call to humility. So, worship God. It's not just about doing these things and checking these boxes. It's about how are you with God? Are you submitting to God? Are you humble before God? And you know what's interesting about these two commands? I think these two commands summarize the whole thing. But these two commands are passive. So the way I put my main goal is this way. Be humbled and submitted to God. Not humble yourself and not submit to God. I said, be humbled and be submitted to God. Do you know why? This is wonderful. I, I love this about this command. This, co this command, these commands, verse 7 to 10, is not a call for you to act. It's a call for you to react. It's a call for you to react. Why do you need to submit? Because God is already reigning. God is reigning. So react to God's reign by being submitted to his reign. Stop rebelling and bucking against his reign. And then be humble because God's already exalting himself above you. And he already made you the needy creature that you are. You don't need to try to manufacture humility. God's already humbling you. Just acknowledge who God is and who you are. This is good news for me because he's not telling us to start something. You don't have to be a strong, you don't have to be strong in pursuing humility. You don't have to be strong in your will to, to be subjected. You don't have to initiate. You don't have to focus on yourself and your repentance. You get to focus on God. He reigns. He's made you needy. He's promised to exalt you. He's working in you. You're called to look to him and in looking to him, humbly acknowledge him. And your place in relation to Him. And the promise is that He will exalt you. He'll give you forgiveness from sins, eternal life, joy, honor. In the end, you will reign with Him on the new earth. And the final judgment, you will be free from that judgment. And even in this life, God will exalt you with joy and humility and true biblical wisdom. So let's praise God that we can worship Him in this way. So Christians, final application. Be humbled before God directionally. 
comprehensively, emotionally, interpersonally, and ultimately worshipfully. As a church family, let's be a community of the humbled. Let's encourage each other to be humbled before God, to mourn over our sin. And here's the final thing. The final call is gladly take, gladly look to God and let the humbling and the grace giving take place. God wants to give you grace. You don't have to try to do that. Just look to God and let him work humility in your life. Our conflicts are selfish due to selfish idolatry. God calls us to humble repentance, to give greater grace for the final day and for us to experience and enjoy his grace and peace every day. The whole book of James is about wisdom, growing in wisdom. So wisdom is, let me just say this to close, wisdom is fundamentally not, or wisdom is not fundamentally, true wisdom is not fundamentally behavioral. We want, we want to change our bad behaviors for good, but it's not fundamentally behavioral. Behavioral. Secondly, true wisdom is not fundamentally conceptual or philosophical or theological. We want to exchange our bad and false thoughts for true thoughts. But here's the key. True wisdom is fundamentally relational. That's the point of this whole chapter, or this whole section. It's about your relationship to God when you're fighting. It's relational. Wisdom is relational. It's enjoying the things of life with God in the center and as the goal. Because it's all about enjoying Him. That's how it works in relationships too. If I want to fix my relationship with my wife, it's not like, what are the five things I need to do? Right? What are the behaviors I need to change, Francis? What are the truths I need to, what are the lies in my life? At the end of the day, it's like, I need to value her, right? I need to relate to her. And that's the same thing with God. It's not ultimately about theology, though theology is good. It's not ultimately about behavior. It's about relating to God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'd help us to humble ourselves before you and relate to you rightly. Humble us before you, we pray, in deep and true repentance so that we might have greater grace and true wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, brothers and sisters.